listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. All right, so I'm going to ask three questions today. And then I'm going to offer two biblical texts to answer the second question. And then I'm going to offer three biblical texts to answer the third question. Now, you're going to need your Bible because nothing is going to be up here on the screen. Uh, We're just going to work through this together. And before I do that, just for those who are visiting, just to let you know, we've been in this series called God's Story, Our Story, and we're learning how to listen, love, and live the with God life. And this has largely been a spiritual practices series. But what we're doing in between is we learn some new spiritual practices together, uh, both as individual worshipers and as corporate worshipers or gathered worshipers, Uh, We have to remind ourselves of the story so that God's story can really become our story, so we can reorient ourselves around the gospel story of God and the gospel mission of God. And so that's the preface to what I'm doing today. So we'll interrupt this periodically. Second, our shepherds and staff had our all-day retreat yesterday, and I just want to praise God for the work he did there. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for joining us in the prayer and fast Friday, those of you who did. God moved in beautiful ways. Uh, He convicted us in beautiful ways. And we have a lot of very exciting things to share with you over the next several weeks. Uh, And so this particular conversation we'll have this morning will also help us navigate those conversations later as well, in addition to our sermon series that we're in. So the first question I want to ask, and I want you to answer it in your head, is what are the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the church in the New Testament? What are the metaphors? Well, there's one. There's the family of God, that the church is called the family of God. These are direct metaphors that you find in Paul's epistles or elsewhere in the New Testament. That God's people are brothers and sisters, children of the same father that makes his family. That changes relationships in this building immediately. So the church is a family. The second thing is that the church is the bride of Christ. That helps us understand that Jesus, that we are now one with Jesus and that Jesus is the husband of the church. And so we are connected to him in every way. We can't disconnect from the head or from the husband. And so we are the bride of Christ. But then there's a third metaphor called the body of Christ. And that metaphor is wrapped up in a lot of different descriptions for the Apostle Paul. Really, really beautiful descriptions. But but one alluding to the idea that Christ is the head and that we are just the body. but, But we function because of what the head wants us to do. And so we become the hands and the feet of Christ. And that's very real, hands and feet. All right, so keep that in your heart as we go through this conversation. So my first question was, what are the three metaphors that are mostly used in Scripture? And the one I want to capture is the body of Christ. The next question I want to ask is this. What has God always wanted to do with His people? What has always been His people's purpose from Genesis to Revelation? What has always been their purpose? I want to answer that question with two texts. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 12. Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, you find that God is about to make a promise, a covenant with Abram. He goes by the name of Abraham later. We teach our kids this sometimes in children's ministry, the song, Father Abraham had many sons. And we teach them that because in a very real sense, Christians are related to Abraham by a spiritual lineage. 
He is the father of faith in a lot of ways because he is the man that God made a covenant with. And this covenant that God made is a covenant, a promise that God it was always faithful to keep despite the fact that his people weren't faithful in keeping their end of the covenant. And so in this covenant, we find God has a very specific purpose for this people that he wants to form from this man named Abraham. And I want to read that. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And listen to this. And you will be, what's the words? A blessing. Okay, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And look at this. And all the peoples on earth, all the peoples. You see the word all? In the Hebrew, the word all literally means all. Like all the peoples on the earth will be, what's the word? Blessed through you. Okay, so there's this notion that God wanted Israel to be Israel just for themselves. But in the covenant, in the Abrahamic covenant, what you learn in the text here is that God's intent was always for him to form a people that would bless the entire world and that would be a blessing to the entire world. Saving the Gentiles was not God's plan B. That was always plan A. He was just going to save Gentiles through his people that would become Israelites. So here's the truth of, of, of God's people. God's people are going to be formed not for themselves. Are you with me? God didn't want to form a people so they could be happy amongst themselves and have things themselves and have each other alone and that be their only purpose. God says, I want to form you into a great nation so that you will be a blessing to all the earth. God wanted to form a people from the very outset of Scripture who would be raised up by Him personally as God and King to learn what it means to live as God as king, with God as king, so that, not so they can enjoy all that for themselves, but so that they could be a blessing to the rest of the world. So that other nations would look at them and say, why in the world do you love your neighbor? Why do you love the poor? Why do you love the, the orphan? Why do you love the widow? Who, who is your God? Why do you free people of debt every 40, you know, 50 years? Why do you do the things you do so that they could be a blessing to the world? God wanted to raise up a people to be a blessing to all people. Okay, so what happens is Israel doesn't live into this very well. God forms this nation. He saves them uh, through slavery, Egyptian slavery and captivity. And through that, he gives them a law. He turns them from nomads into a nation, this wandering people into a nation, national people. He gives them economics. He gives them health care. He gives them all the things they need to be a people. He gives them politics. He gives them justice on legal and social levels. He gives them worship laws. He gives them everything they need to be a people so that... As he's told Ezekiel, he could demonstrate his holiness through them to the nations. They blow it over and over and over and over again because they begin to live for themselves. They, they begin to turn all their attention on themselves as a people of God. And then they become prideful because they're the people of God. And they start turning in toward their sin and it just gets all discombobulated. And they don't live it out well. And so now they find themselves trying to learn what it means to be what they were created to be, which is a blessing to all people, to make blessings tangible. And by the way, that's what it means to be a blessing. See, to be a blessing is not just bless you. 
It's not something we say when someone sneezes. To be a blessing literally means to make tangible the love of God to somebody at that moment. That's what it means to be a blessing. That you make tangible, touch, taste, feel, smell, the love of God at that moment. And so God wanted them to be a blessing. They're not living into it. So they find themselves in this now exilic existence, meaning they have been exiled and taken over by an utterly godless nation called Babylon. So Babylon has come in and ransacked God's people, ransacked their nation, and now they're scattered all throughout the earth, all throughout now this Babylon empire, this Babylonian people who couldn't care less about God, couldn't care less about Yahweh, couldn't care less about loving neighbor, couldn't, just couldn't care less. And so he sends prophet after prophet after prophet. He sends this one prophet named Jeremiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah 29. And so God wants to remind his people again of their identity because they've lost their identity. And you know you can't blame them for losing their identity. Their land is gone, their worship is destroyed, and they are scattered in a godless nation. They're in a place that they don't belong. There's nothing familiar about their living station right now. They're immigrants. They're captured by a godless nation. So God sends them a letter. And this is what he says in Jeremiah 29, chapter 4, or chapter, verse 4. Chapter 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, say to all the exiles, I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. See, God had his hand in this exile because he wanted to get their attention. He sent him prophet after prophet. They didn't care. They didn't listen. And so God said, I'll give you what you want. You want life without me as king. You can have life without me as king. So you have what you desire. And they had exile. And so he says, this is what I say to the God, the God of Israel. I say to those I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Listen to what he says. Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take Wives for your sons, and give your daughters to men in marriage, so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. In other words, God is saying, look, I want you to just have a life. Where I, I sent you there, I deported you there, to Babylon, to this godless nation. And so I'm commanding you, have a life. Settle down, just build houses, plant gardens, eat produce, have children. Have children who have children. Have a life. Have the good life in Babylon. And I can almost hear the response of, of the exiles. But, but God, this is Babylon. Like, they're a godless nation. They don't care about you at all. And you want us to, to, to claim this as our own? To, to just, just settle down and, and live as though it's okay to live in this godless nation? This godless place? This place we don't belong? And see, here's the thing. It didn't stop there because God had another thing he wanted them to do. He didn't want them just to settle down for themselves. Look at what verse 7 says. He says, I want you to seek the welfare of the city I have deported you. Excuse me? Pray to the Lord on its behalf. And listen to this. For when it has prosperity, what are the words? You will prosper. Okay. God, I'm, 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 not, I'm not clear. I, I thought I heard you say that I should seek the welfare of Babylon. That I should... That, that we as a people should live in such a way that we work for the good of Babylon. And that not only that, we should pray on its behalf. 
Notice God didn't say preach at it and talk about how godless it is, talk about how broken it is. It's not what he asked him to do, is it? He said, I want you to seek the welfare of the city. I want you to live in such a way that you do good for that city. I want you to learn what the soul of that city is. I want you to hear the suffering and the cries of that city. And I want you, my people, who in Genesis 12, I said I wanted to create a nation that would become a blessing to that city. I want you to be a blessing to that city. I know it's a godless city. I know they don't care anything about me. But you know what? I'm hoping you'll live in such a way that you'll change that. That you'll seek all the bad and all the nasty that's in that place, all the godliness that's in that place, the godlessness, and that you would live in such a way that you would be a blessing, that you would make my love and my presence tangible to them by how you live your life. And that you would do it not for yourselves, but for the city. And that you would pray not just prayers for yourselves. God, please heal our sick but that you would pray for the good of the city. God, please save. Give peace and love and hope to our city. See, God's intention has always been this for his people. And I want to make something very clear for us people who struggle with Old and New Testament. Okay, here's, here's what I believe. I could be wrong. But if Jesus is the messianic king and he's now our king, so there's, there's, a, there's a line connected from Old to New that we can't, that we can't divorce. Okay, here's, here's where I'm tracking. What God has always wanted for his people is still what he wants for his people. It's just how one becomes his people has changed because of Jesus. How you and I become his people has changed because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But what God has always wanted from his people and for his people has never, ever changed. And if we doubt that and we struggle, then we have to look no farther than Jesus himself. And so if God wants his people to exist, not for themselves, but for the good of the city for which he's planted them, then we have to ask the question, how? See, what happens a lot of times is churches begin to fight over things, and we're not there but churches as a whole, us, we, as in the universal church, we become so inner focused that we want churches for me. I want a church for me. I'm looking for a church for me. What are you going to do for my children? And, and I want a church that has pews, not chairs, and, and, and a preacher that wears khakis, not jeans, and, 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 a, and, a, and a band that has an organ, not a guitar. And, and I want, I want uh, uh, my, my worship leader to wear a scarf and a faux hawk, not you know, a sweatshirt. Um, I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking I, want, I want different things. I want the table over here, not there. And that's the ugliest doily I've ever seen. And I want, you know, I want different. And we have these mentalities that we want a church for me. And then the church begins to fight about this. And here's the tragedy. Here's the tragedy of that is the church wasn't created to be about us. The church was created to involve us in the mission of God. The church is about the glory of God for the good of the world. It's never about me and you. You know why? Because if you're saved and I'm saved, guess what we have? Jesus. We have everything we need. Okay, we'll work out all the issues, but not so much to where we neglect the mission and the purpose of our existence. And the mission of the purpose of our existence is to be joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives, plain and simple. It's to be about the good of the city for the glory of God, plain and simple. 
that's going to mess with us and challenge us. It's going to cause us to not fight about things that maybe others fight about. It's going to cause us to make sure we're focused where we need to be focused as the people of God. And it's, and it's inherent. I'm only giving you just, oh my, just the shallow waters of the scriptural basis of this belief. We're not even going to get into Acts and work out the Pauline epistles and Peter's epistles and John's epistles today. We're not even going to look much through the Gospels. I'm just trying to draw a line for you and I from Genesis. And if we really wanted to be technical, we'd start at Genesis 1. But in our case, from Genesis 12 to where we are now. God has always wanted to raise up a people who would seek the welfare of all the nations around them. So that we would live in such a way and so that we would love the city in such a way that the city would wonder why we are who we are and why we do what we do. And the city can't see that if we're turning into ourselves and trying to create a church for us. We have to be a church for God and for the good of the city. And that looks like something, okay? And and here's where I go to see what it looks like. And I invite you to go there with me. It's Luke chapter 4. So I figure if there is a how to this seeking the welfare of the city and praying on its behalf, I figure the best person to go to is Jesus himself. So Jesus does what any good Jew does, and he goes to the synagogue. And this is how he launches his ministry. He comes in chapter 4, verse 16, and, and the text says this. Luke says this to us. He says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. He turned to Isaiah chapter 61, actually. And he reads this, verse 18 of chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. The Greek transliteration from the Hebrew there for poor is the anawim. And the anawim literally means the forgotten ones, or in current vernacular would literally be translated the losers. And Jesus says, I came to preach good news to the anawim, to the losers. So that could mean anything poor. Financially, spirit, heart. It's the anawim, forgotten ones. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Text goes on and says, And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, dropped the mic, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, Today as you listen, This scripture has been, what's the word? Fulfilled. See, in this text, Jesus now sets a new vision of the world. See, the vision that Jesus sets is a renewed vision. It's new for them, but it's renewed in light of Genesis 12. It's renewed in light of what God has always been wanting to do through his people. It's renewed because it's only something he's been talking about he would do when the Messiah finally came. Jesus is saying, hey, I've come so that I could offer something to the world that the world didn't realize was offered. And it only comes when God is king. He says, I'm going I'm to offer good news, gospel to the poor. I'm going to offer freedom to those who are buried beneath the weight of religious legalism are buried beneath the weight of their own sin and their own death. I'm going to free them, actually. I'm going to offer them freedom. I'm going to offer those whose backs are bent over by oppression, whatever the oppression is, I'm going to offer them hope. 
And he casts this vision of what it looks like to encounter Jesus. And so where I track is the church is called the body of Christ. And we often say the hands and feet. And so the way I figure it, if we are the hands and feet of Christ, the best thing for us to do is to see what Jesus' literal hands and feet were doing. So what were Jesus' hands doing? They were touching the lepers. They were touching the untouchable of society, literally. They were comforting the hurting, his hands. They were turning over tables of injustice when, when money changers were coming in and charging people to buy worship items, thereby keeping the poor and the lame and the sick out of the temple of God. Jesus, in, with his hands of justice, turns over the tables of injustice and the text literally says, and the poor and the lame came into the temple. We see Jesus' hands touching the unlovable. We see Jesus' hands touching people in such a way that it offers hope. That's what we see Jesus' hands doing. So church, if we're the hands of Christ, are we doing what the hands of Jesus did? But then we gotta talk about the feet of Christ. See, the feet of Christ were always out. The feet of Christ weren't, hey, y'all come to the synagogue and hear, hear me talk about the scroll of Isaiah. It wasn't what the feet of Christ did. They didn't stay in one place. The feet of Christ walked to the highways and to the byways. The feet of Christ walked into the house of the rich and the religious elite and dined with them, and loved them. The feet of Christ walked into the highways and the byways of the poor, the sinners and the outcast, and dined with them, and loved them. The feet of Christ traveled from one place to the other, from neighbor to neighbor, from workplace to workplace. So the feet of Christ were always moving. The feet of Christ weren't just standing. The question for me and you is, if we're the feet of Christ, are we acting as though we are a sent people? And not just to save people that we say, hey, come to us. Are we going to them? Because Jesus was sent for us. And see, then John has the audacity in his first letter to say, hey, if you're going to be a person of God, that will translate when you come together as a people of God, then you have to do this one thing. And so, 1 John chapter 2 John says this, beginning in verse 3. He says, This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him without keeping his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now that's harsh language, John. And then he says this, But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is being matured or perfected. And listen to this text. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as Jesus walked. And so if we're the hands and feet of Christ, if we're the people that God has been trying to form since Genesis chapter 12, and we are, we are the restored Israel of God, if that is who we are, then we are raised about by God, under God's rule and provision and love and reign, not to be about ourselves, but to be about his mission, to be a people on mission with him, a people who... Follow Jesus with our hands and feet. Which means we set our hands to do what Jesus' hands did. And we set our feet to go where Jesus' feet went. See, that's what I think it means to be the church. And I think it's much deeper than that, to be honest with you. And so I close with this text. Because Jesus would offer, I think, a description of everything we've just talked about living on mission with him, enjoying his love, Jesus would 
say it like this in Matthew chapter 28, if you have your Bible there. After Jesus spends about 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God, as Luke told us in Acts chapter 1, Jesus brings them to this place and he says the following thing in Matthew chapter 28. And we have to start in verse 18. When we usually talk about the Great Commission text, we usually start at verse 19. But to me, verse 19 can only happen if verse 18 is true. And it makes sense because Jesus said it all in the same breath. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You need not permission from anybody else but me. You need to find no power in anyone else but me. You can't find hope or love in anything else but me. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go. Just go. Go, therefore, and here's the imperative of the text. Make disciples of all nations. Not just of your children. Not just of your family. Not just of your church. Of all nations. Of all people. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not negotiating baptism baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, and just remember, I am with you always to the end. And see, that statement finds its power in verse 18 when Jesus says, you don't need church, we as we're Christian, you don't need anything else but me to live out this mission. And even if your life is a, is a tangled up mess right now, I'm telling you, Jesus says, you don't need anything else but me. All authority is mine. You're not going to find hope in a church. You're not going to find hope in a system. You don't need anything else but me. And so I want you to be my people who are on mission with me, who are about going, who are, are about making disciples of all people. And I want you to do that because you can, because you have me. You need nothing else but me. And when you start to wonder if you have me, I want you to hear my words, he says. I am with you always until the end of the age. I am not going anywhere because I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. No one's coming up on my throne. I knew what I was doing before you were ever born. I have plans for you, plans for hope and a future and a prosperity, not for something else that the world has to offer you. So go about Williamsburg Christian Church. Go about being my people in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces. Let your feet go to the person in the cubicle next to you and just ask them how their life is, how they're doing. Let your feet move you to your neighbor and knock on their door with your hands and say, I've lived here for eight years and I've never met you and I'm sorry about that. I just wanted to tell you my name is Fred and I hope you have a blessed day. And just be a blessing to people and see what God will do in that. Amen. And before you know it, You may be baptizing your neighbor. You may be baptizing your coworker. And you may be walking alongside them in this journey of discipleship. And then this journey called being on mission with God, or as we say it here in our church, being joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. If you're visiting and you want to know about this church, this is who we're set out to be. We're not going to try to be a church for you. We're going to try and be a church for God. Because that's our identity as a people. But here's the beauty of it. You won't walk in this life alone because we'll have each other. 
because that makes us family. We'll try our hardest to work out our issues and work out our things so that we're never distracted from why God made us in the first place. And then when this trumpet sounds and Jesus stands before us, then look back on the work that we have done for God and we will look at him and we'll fall at his feet and we'll say thank you for saving us despite the fact that we failed you miserably. Thank you for loving us and redeeming us and keeping us and we will never, ever live without Jesus. Ever and we will never live without each other because we will always have Jesus and that church, that changes the world. The question is, will we be a part of the change? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for being a God who has sent us and who loves us and who knows us and who has set us free from even ourselves. Father, help us as a church to know what it means to live on mission with you and help us to let go of ownership of things that we do not own. Father, help us to let go of the things that we hold on to that mean so much to us that are not things that, that you want us to hold on to. Father, forgive us when we go prideful and egocentric and we miss the point. Father, I praise you and thank you so much for what you're doing in this church. Praise you and thank you so much for what you're, you're attempting to do in all of our lives together. Father God, if there is anything we ever seek to do, set out to do, that doesn't bring you honor and doesn't seek the good of this city and this state and this country and this world, then God, we ask that in your grace and mercy you utterly defeat us and that you set us back on course. But Father, if there's anything we do as a family, as your family, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in this, in, in, in this building, uh, in this city, in the counties, in the, in the state, in the country, in the world, then God, if there's anything we ever do that brings you glory, that would be for the good of people who don't know you so that they would glorify you through our good works and come to know you forever, then God, please establish that and bless it. But Father, above even that, show us as a church what you're already doing in this city because we know that what you're doing is already blessed. And help us just to get in on that and join you in your work of restoring lives here. Father, be with those in this church who right now just can't look past the hurt in their life. Who can't look past the pain. Who might not even be able to look past the sin. And we pray that by the blood of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, you would bring about a conviction that would lead to hope and healing, repentance and restoration. Father, open the hearts that have live so long not knowing you or fully knowing you so that every heart here can come to know the fullness of God that is in Christ, the fullness of your love. Thank you for setting us free. In the name of Jesus we pray. May we be your people and all of your people said amen. Our shepherds will be lined up to the wall if you need anything, if you need prayers, if you need hope, we will walk with you as we point to Jesus. If there's anything we can do for you, come as we stand and sing.